We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Okay, we're going to invite Brother James once again here and look forward to his teaching. Thank you, Brother. We are returning again to the book of James. And we will be spending some time in chapter 4, and we will get into chapter 5 some. And consider what is here, what we find in this section of Scripture. Again, as I started last week, I'll start with the first verse again in chapter 1. The book, it says here, James, a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. And so he starts out identifying those to whom he is given this particular set of teachings. And the word, uh, the 12 tribes scattered abroad. And then in verse number two, he says, my brethren. So my brethren is a term which means that there are at least two categories of people. My brethren and those who are not my brethren. So what does what, that mean? It, well, it just means what it sounds like, that brethren is a term which is used to identify those who are genuine believers. Like we would say Christians and non-Christians. Not every person is a Christian. Some people are. The ones who are not are not Christian. So we might have certain addresses that we give to Christians. Now, one of the things that's interesting about that is that when we consider Christian and Christian behavior and the behavior of the people we see and know who name themselves as Christians, Sometimes the things that we see don't seem to fit with the title that is attached. We want to labor and work and try to not let that be our situation because we want not just to have a testimony or a word to say, I am Christian. But we want it to allow us to be such that people can see some evidence that is consistent with that profession made with a mouth. If we listen and pay attention closely to what James is saying, he offers a lot of help in that arena, in that very thing. How is it that I'm going to live my life? How should I? What should I be doing? So I'm not going to go over again everything we talked about before. I'm going to jump over to chapter 4. Now, chapter 4 began with what might be seen as somewhat of a surprise for a letter addressed to Christians, to brethren. 
because we're supposed to know how to behave ourselves. But he says here in verse, in chapter 4, he starts out here by saying, where do wars and fights come from among you? And we take it that he still has in focus the same group he identified in verse, in the beginning of the book, in chapter 1. But he said, they come from your desires for pleasure. Desires for pleasure. And so there is a passion, a desire for something that's not of God. And it's causing problems. Conflicts. And strife. And all kinds of things. And then he goes on talking about those kinds of things. And then I'm going to drop down to verse number 6. He's, where he says God gives more grace. And here's what I want us to focus here. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We're to humble ourselves in the face of the mighty God, to be humble before him. And that's what he's looking for. And if we're not humble before God, then we need to hit pause say, I haven't gotten the first step right. Let me humble myself before the mighty hand of God. And then start again. So he says then, in verse number seven, submit to God. It's interesting what he does here and what, what we see here, because one could ask the question, what is it that I need to do? How can I behave myself the way that I should? Or, as I put in my title, I think I told you that title last week for this section, I had how to become rightly aligned with God. How do you do that? I'm just going to lift off these phrases that James uses. He says, submit to God. That's in the imperative tense. That's a command. Submit. So if you want to have a right alignment with God, the first step is submit to him. But then it says resist the devil. Now, do you think you can submit to God without also resisting the devil? But he lists those two in two separate phrases. So submit to God. So we recognize and acknowledge who God is, what his place is, his proper place, and submit to him. But we also recognize that we have an active foe. We have an active opponent, as it were. We're saying how to be rightly aligned with God. And we have an opponent whose prime mission, primary goal, it's to see to it that we don't have a right alignment with God. James says, resist him. We resist him by turning away and not saying yes to what he tells us to do. We don't do as Eve did and listen and turn it over in my minds and say, oh, well, maybe there is some value in what he's saying. We don't want that approach. James just says, resist then it says, draw near to God. So you're submitting to God, resisting the devil, and then draw near to God. And then 
Here's, this comes with a promise. And I like that. We all do. If we understand what is being said here. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. <laughs> That's really quite interesting. I remember I read something where somebody was talking about how, you know, when we pray and sometimes it doesn't seem anything that happens and all that sort of thing. And somebody gave an illustration like this. And they said, you know, what if you're sitting in a boat, you cast out a line, it's attached to where it should be, and you keep drawing on the line, and you don't seem to be, it doesn't seem that, that God is moving at all, <laughs> but you keep drawing on the line. What happens? You're getting closer to the shore. You're getting closer to God because you're keeping on doing what you're supposed to be doing, drawing near to God. And so he says that, do that. He said, cleanse your hands. And that just harkens back. You know, we talk about how James comes out of the Jewish Old Testament culture. And the cleansing of the hands, the ceremonial cleaning of hands was a practice. And so this is used in a metaphorical sense to say you need to clean yourself. Not in the physical sense of washing hands, but they understand what that means. So he says, cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. So then there are two aspects here. One is the external and the other is the internal. It's good for us to come here looking nice, properly dressed and all that. That's good. We should. But we should also be properly dressed inside. So we have the both, not one or the other. And then when he says here, lamentum, uh, he said, purify your hearts. Double-minded of two minds, trying to go both ways trying to be straddling the fence. But he says, double-minded. In verse 9, I think, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter return to mourning, your joy to gloom. So the idea here that is that sinners, that's what you need to do. You need to lament and mourn and weep over your sin to recognize it and then realize how bad it is and how awful and how much there is the need to get away from it and to be in submission to God and to draw near to him. And that's what he's saying should be done. So then he says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. So there is something to do there. And we talked about looking into the scriptures and continuing in them with a goal that we not only learn what's there, but that we acquire what's there so that God can work it in and through us so that it comes out in our feet, as it were. And, and the goal is there. He tells us to pursue that. Now, one of the things I mentioned is that there are some things here that we're going to come to just now which have caused some people to say, James says, brethren are the people to whom he's speaking. But there are some things here that seem discordant with the idea that this is directed to brethren. I touched that a little bit last time. But one of the things I want to note now is this, is this. The word brethren occurs in this book of James 15 times. 
Now there are five chapters and 15 mentions. So what do you think? Three for each chapter? You might think that. And I think I counted them correctly. But that's not the way it's divided. If you look, it, there are three in chapter one, three in chapter two, three in chapter three. Brethren occurs once in chapter four. And then in fact, chapter five, it picks up again. It gives five mentions of the word brethren. So some think that this is a significant thing because we, and this is where I'm going to look at it just now. If we look at the mentions of the word brethren, let's see, I have those written. If you look at chapter 4, And verse number 11, it says there, do not speak evil of one another, brethren. And then if I have looked correctly, and I think I have, the next one occurs in chapter 5, verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. And so between these two verses, the book ended Bookends, with bookends, uh, with the word brethren at the bookends of this section. It's interesting now to take a look and see well, what's between those bookends. We know he addressed brethren before he moves in, brethren after he moves in. I think it's clear that he's addressing brethren, at least in the first part of this. The question arises more so with the second part, which will come in chapter 5. But let's go through it and take a look. So in verse 11, we saw, we saw that word. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law. You're but, but a judger of it. That means you're not doing the law, you're judging the law. Now, when we think about that, that's quite a perilous thing to do, to judge the law, because if you judge the law, then that is indicating that you have some kind of say about the lawgiver. It's like you're demeaning the lawgiver if you demean the law because those are not uh, separable. The law came from the lawgiver. So this is what it says here. In verse 12, there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. So who are you? <laughs> so, or we, as we might say sometimes, who do you think you are? <laughs> That's what the kids used to say, who do you think you are? You know, you're going to say that to me. Well, God is saying he is the one lawgiver, He's able to save and to destroy. He's the one that we ought to be paying attention to. It is what he says and thinks and has for us is what we should be caring about. And we should focus our attention there. 
But let's roll, roll, move along here. So he says, come now, you who say, today and tomorrow, we will go to such a place, such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Now, I'm going to make a comment or some connecting this to the section in, verse, in chapter 5, in the first, uh, I think, six verses there. Because as I have thought about this, it just seems to me that there is something here that is, shall we say, progressive or developmental. The idea is that if you get on a path, it's leading somewhere. I've used that expression before. If you're on a path, it's leading somewhere. It's good to know where it's leading. Where's this path taking me? If I stay on this path, where am I going to end at the end of it? I think I see that sort of notion here in this section. So he says here, so these people say, well, this is what I'm going to do. Go down to this city, spend a year there. I'm going to do this trade and all this, and I'll make a gain. Get rich. Rich. Hang on to that word. That word. That's the passion that they have. They say, I'm going to go and do it, and I'm going to get rich. That may not be the best idea. That may not be the best way for them to be thinking about their lives or even to live it, the best way to live their lives. But this is apparently what they were doing. So he says here in verse number 14, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, so what is your life? Who are you to just independently, as an individual, declare this is what I'm going to do? For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and vanishes away. A vapor. <laughs> Pastor sent me a nice note. And a note of encouragement. But there are so many family and acquaintances that have departed over what seems to be a relatively short period of time. The life is like a vapor. That's what it says here. And then vanishes away. It means it's gone. It's, the time is short. And so he says, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. And so the idea is not that you need to say these certain words. That's not the idea. Just like when we pray and we offer our prayers in the name of the Lord Jesus, it's not that the physical vocalizing of the words itself is the point. That's, that's not the point. But we vocalize the words because that's an expression of what's in the heart. And that's why we vocalize the words. So the words can be vocalized without the heart being in agreement with it. But if you vocalize the words, I can't see how, whether your heart's in agreement with it or not, but God does. And so he's, they say here, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall go and live and do this or that. Verse 16, but now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. People don't like to be told that what they're doing is evil, <laughs> much less that they themselves are evil. But it says, all such boasting is evil. 
Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. So, I think part of what we're seeing here is this mindset, this attitude, this idea of an independence, and I'm just going to say it plainly, of an independence from God, but a passion for wealth and riches and a plan for how to get it. And activity, plan to go and to do it. But James is saying, wait. <laughs> he started this section. He says, my brethren, don't speak evil one another. But I'm attaching what he's saying, brethren, consider what you're doing here. Now, notice in verse five, uh, chapter 5 now what he does. After, in this prior portion I just talked about, where he's talked about speaking evil of a brother and judging the law versus doing the law and having a profit motive and being arrogant and the responsibility to not just know but to do the right thing. And then he says, come now, you rich. Did he say, what did he say? Come now, you rich. Well, that's quite interesting because I said, the word brethren occur at once in chapter 4. It didn't come again until chapter 5, verse 7. He didn't start chapter 5, verse 7 by saying, come now, you rich brethren, or you brethren. And so that leaves room for people to consider to say, well, what really is he saying here? To whom is this specific part directly addressed? Well, obviously it's addressed to the brethren, but how shall they understand it? Does it necessarily mean that they themselves are doing these things? It could be that some among them are. But the way that I'm thinking about this is this, that if they are passionate about pursuing wealth and riches, where is it going? It's going to chapter 5. That's the way I'm looking at this. And so here's what he says. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. And so they are in a position. So there are rich people who don't understand what their condition is. They think the wealth and the riches are important and a high priority or perhaps top priority, but he says miseries are coming. Take note of that. Your riches are corrupted, are corrupted. They don't see it, so he has to tell them. Your heart wasn't right, and you have these riches. Corrupted, they're of no value to you, ultimately. You think about the rich man who had the barn. He said, well, all my stuff... You know, I don't have enough room to stir it all. So what am I going to do? Tear it down, build new barns so I can have room enough for all my stuff. And I'll be set for years to come. And what happened? He wasn't independent of God. <laughs> he didn't even live to get the barns torn down, much less to fill the new ones with his stuff. He says, your riches are corrupted. Your garments are moth-eaten. It's given as if it's already ha happened to them. 
Your gold, your silver, corroded, your corro- and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Heaping up treasure. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world? The whole world and lose his own soul. What does it profit? Indeed, the wages of your laborers, he says here, who mowed your fields, which you keep back by fraud, cry out. God has a heart, an ear, and he hears. And you can, you can demean, you can defraud, but not without God's notice and concern and response. And so he says there, those laborers out there doing that work, they need the money they earn. I remember back in my college days when I was doing construction work and all that, and, and there were people who were day laborers. And so they would go to the, like the union hall, and they would stand there waiting for an opportunity, somebody to give them a job so they can work that day. These were people who needed to earn some money. They needed that. So what if they go and work all day and then the person who hired them said, I'm sorry, I'm not going to, I don't have any money. I'll give you, maybe I'll pay you next week sometime. See, that would be a horrible thing to do to a person, right? This kind of thing, he says, was being done. Labors, they mowed, but God kept note of it. The cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. The Lord of hosts is like an army, and he's the head of the host that will come after you. You don't want to be at the opposite end of that. So, he says here, you have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury and you have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just, and he does not resist you. So think about that. So the connection that I was making uh, here with what was before in chapter 4, where I said they're going out and pursuing and having this goal, top priority of life, to go and to get these riches, this is the path they were on. And so if they were to successfully pursue the path, this is the plot that they would have. Now, none of them would have said at the beginning of the journey, I'm going out to take steps towards becoming a murderer. <laughs> they wouldn't have said that. Eyes can be blinded so people can't see what is obvious, or patent the obvious to the ones who are not so blind maybe nearsighted like me or farsighted or whatever kind of sighted, but some sighted <laughs> enough to see, but some don't see. And so this, to me, seems to be what is going here. And so the message then is germane, not just for them but for us, because it's talking about the heart and what's moving the heart. What is the motivating force? What's driving? What's goal, what goals are being ascribed to or, or strived for? What are these things? And James is getting right at it. He says, you need to watch what you're doing 
You need to be wise. Because you see, he said earlier on, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives all men liberally and upbraids not. He says, if you don't understand, ask for wisdom from God so he can help you. Because you don't want to get down this path and be way down there. Because once you get down there, you're going to know that's not where you want to be. And it will be too late. Brother Chuck we talk about Brother Chuck. He just left us not long ago. And he, one of the things he would often say, that eventually it's going to be too late. Too late. James says, don't be in the too late group. Don't be one of the too late uh, to come to the things of God. Because the scripture does say that every knee, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we know that everybody is going to bow before him. But the ones who haven't bowed to him don't know that. They need to know it. That's why a couple of our brothers were out yesterday with a gospel message down on the campus. Because they're trying to get some people to know that who didn't know. I don't know what kind of context maybe they had yesterday, but we did pray about that. Because that's the thing, those are the things that are important. Not being passionate and having as a first priority of life to accumulate things that are contrary to God and things that would be misused without the wisdom of God. It would be misused. A lot of people want to have wealth and fame, and all that. It's good for somebody to want to do well in what they do. God commends that. But to have the right motive as to what it is all about, to have that motive, as Scripture says, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. You want him to be glorified and honored in what you do. Whether you have wealth or poverty or sickness of health, you want him to be glorified. That's the goal. So that's all for today. I will have a prayer and then we'll close. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege that you have given to us. Help us now to hear the still small voice of the Lord speaking in our hearts and taking our hands and leading us. We ask in the name of Christ the Savior of Thanksgiving. Amen.